All right, we are live. Hello, everyone. Manny here. I am your host, and today we have a very special guest. We have Eric Utston, who is the CEO of Twin Thread. He's come on the show today to talk to us about everything digital twin, AI, machine learning, analytics for manufacturing and other industry 4.0 applications and industry. So we're really excited to have him on the show. Uh, we are live. So the nice thing about that is that you get to ask questions, you get to participate, you get to, to put your comments. So make sure that you're doing that in the chat and we'll monitor that, we'll monitor that from time to time. But um, let me introduce our very special guest today, I have Eric here. As I mentioned, he is the the CEO and co-founder of TwinThread, um, former founder of Mountain Systems that was acquired by GE. Um, he uh, After that, he headed up GE Intelligent Platforms. And that's now GE Digital. So, and I think he also acquired Smart Signals, um, but you'll have to uh, give us a little bit more clarity on that, Eric. So, um, with that, uh, let's welcome Eric to the show. Hi, Eric. Can you say hi to everyone and talk to us a, a little bit about TwinThread? What's what's your current role there? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, TwinThread and 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 my background, um, I. I've spent uh, 25 of the last 30 years doing industrial software startups mostly. I did spend five years, as you mentioned, running the industrial software business at GE. And um, we've just over the last 30 years been evolving really what uh, analytics and digital twins kind of mean. And in, the, in this kind of latest latest venture, TwinThread, we're, we're really taking digital twins to new heights by adding on uh, a lot of analytic monitoring and machine learning capabilities to really bring this concept of predictive operations uh, to reality. Indeed. Um, can you give us um, um, a general definition of digital twin? How do you define that at, at TwinThread? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think everyone has their own flavor of it, own version of what what digital twin is. Um, and so we like to think of digital twins in seven layers and I won't cover all these in detail, but I'll sort of walk through our vision of what really digital twin means. First is a visual it's probably the most uh, well understood layer, if you will, uh, easiest to wrap your mind around, you know, visualizing a piece of equipment or a process um, and and that's the first layer second layer is the 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 history the sensor history in particular really the not just what the current value of of a, of a current sensor is on a piece of equipment but but also all the history so then the third layer is the state history or you might think of it like the events that have impacted that digital twin over the course of time. That's the third layer. The fourth layer is, is really, um, some would call it first principle models. Um, this is what we would call monitoring, really using sometimes simple, sometimes complex logic 
to look after a digital twin um, and to to glean uh, some insight from that. The the next layer is learning models, uh, models that aren't first principle models. Rather, they're models that are examining that history, examining the 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 state as well as the sensor history to be able to forecast something, predict something in the future, or otherwise optimize a set of decisions around that digital twin. And then the sixth and seventh layer are the actions and alerts that are driven off of the digital twin. Um, and the, the seventh layer, the final layer, probably the most important layer to think about when, when uh, scaling digital twins is what we call classes. Classes are really the interrelationships between separate pieces of equipment that may be similar. And uh, classes and those connections between different digital twins are really how you, you, you scale, how you leverage the relationships between similar pieces of equipment or similar processes. Uh, and so that's a pretty complete stack of what a digital twin is and <clears throat> different solutions may implement different layers of that, the, that stack and have different focuses. And, and obviously the, just to kind of circle back to the beginning, the, the most well understood and then and often most uh, talked about area is the visualization layer where, um, you know, naturally that's the visual part. That's the, that's the part that that humans can wrap their mind around easiest but actually there's a lot more value to be had than just visualization it's really all about the monitoring the modeling and then ultimately driving actions around those digital twins that where you get the exponential value from from the concept of a digital twin that's a really good overview seven layers a lot to jump into um yeah. I, you know, my background is in AI, machine learning, analytics, and I found that when I was going into some of uh, so, into some of these manufacturers trying to uh, pitch them on AI and machine learning, that there, there was always like a lot more work that needed to be done up front before we could really get to the value of AI and machine learning. And I feel like like that's step number five or layer number five right. in your that's hierarchy. Right. And I totally appreciate that because then I would have to go up step number one and just to start with a simple visualization and say, hey, like, let's just like grab a, 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 an image of your object and let's tag where the data is coming in. Let's let's document the data streams that you have right now. Let's do some basic monitoring and let's start there. And I, I always felt like I was coming in and, 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 and trying to get going with AI and machine learning, but I was always having to go back to square one. So it, it makes sense that that hierarchy that you've laid out. Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is you. You describe the journey, really. It's it's build the foundation, um, build the context as part of the digital twin. That's both, you know, the history and the state information. And then um, use that history and state information to 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 power models. Um, and you, really, it's AI is, I think a lot of people have this perception that is this magic bullet that, you know, solves all the world's problems, but it's still like any other technology, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So right. 
So there has to be a lot of care taken in, in uh, building up the data infrastructure and context to properly feed the, the modeling layer and properly um, contextualize that data for modeling. Eric, what's the best way to make that pitch? Because I've, I've been in a situation where I'm trying to show the value of AI and in order, or in your case, analytics, digital twin technology. Um, and in order to do that, we need to do some upfront data infrastructure work and data yeah. pipelining. But then, you know, what's the justification for that? Well, it's the AI that's going to come after the case. So it's kind of a, a chicken and egg kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have, have you found a, a great way to get manufacturers and industrial players to appreciate how much work needs to happen up front before you get to the great stuff of analytics, predictions, and machine learning? Yeah, I mean, we, we communicate this as a journey, uh, as I mentioned, and as you highlighted, and that, uh, you know, today's technology, as opposed to technology of even five or, or certainly 10 years ago, you can move through these first steps of the journey very, very, very quickly. I mean, we talk about with our platform moving through those first steps of the journey in minutes and hours, as opposed to what even five years ago was was much, much longer than that. So so it's not so hard when you paint this journey and you get a clear understanding of what the journey is with the with the customer. If if it only takes a few hours or a few days to you versus months or years to move through the first part of the journey. Um, so that's, that's definitely part of it. Here, the other part of it is that um, even though you may want to jump directly to the modeling and the AI piece, um, you do not want to skip past the, the, the first steps of that journey because and we, we call this in our implementation process, baselining. Like if, if you're doing your first AI project, of course you want it to be successful. And of course you want to be able to uh, paint a picture for leadership. This was the benefit. But how, how do you do that without establishing the baseline and establishing where you're currently operating today? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times we've worked with a customer and we baseline where they're operating today and where they're operating today is a, is a complete surprise. Sometimes it's better. And therefore it says, well, maybe this isn't the best use case to start with because you're like operating better than you thought you were. But a lot of times it's, it's considerably worse. You know, they, they believe that their, their efficiency or their waste was X. And in fact, it was, you know, not that. And that sets up, you know, the, the momentum to not only you're establishing like that foundation of good data, you're also setting up the momentum to go through the more difficult parts of the journey, which are the, the modeling and the AI parts of the journey. That is spot on. And I really like that as well in terms of baselining and figuring out where you're starting off and building on top of that. I think it's also pretty important when you get around to AI and machine learning from, from the perspective that oftentimes uh, you want to start with a simple model. And so you want to see what kind of lift you might get with the simple model. So if it's just mm -hmm. rules-based and you get a little bit of a lift, okay, that's okay. 
And then if you want to try something a little bit more complicated, maybe regression, then maybe to a neural net model, you know, every time you do that, you want to make sure that you're getting paid for that. You're getting some lift in terms of your effectiveness. And if you haven't done that initial baselining, then you don't know, you don't know how, you know, what gain you're getting by that additional complexity. So from that perspective, also, it's, it's going to help you quite a bit. And it's going to help your data scientists, because instead of your data scientists going around and trying to put together the most complicated model, maybe they just put together a, a straightforward model and it, it yields a lot of benefit. And, yeah. you know, it's easier for them. It's easier for the company. And you're kind of you're 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 you're, you're rolling with that. Right. Yeah. No, you, you got it. You got it. You mentioned, you mentioned in, 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 um, in your earlier comments around uh, classes and being uh, an ability to scale digital uh, twin. I think that's sort of a, um, a really great selling point of a twin thread. Can you talk a little bit more about how you're doing that, how you're leveraging classes to scale, yeah. uh, not just to one machine, but to, I'm assuming to hundreds of, of machines for a company? Yeah. Yeah, let me uh, let me use a real use case here to kind of bring it to life. Um, one of our largest customers uh, monitors critical power equipment and data centers. So it's not a manufacturing application, but I think you can sort of translate this easily into a manufacturing context. So in this case, they they're monitoring uh, over 400,000 critical assets and have digital twins on over 400,000 assets. And on top of those 400,000 assets, which are of, of various different types, there's a set of monitoring logic, a set of alerts, a set of models. And kind of to give you a sense of scale here, we're talking about uh, 20 million sensors, <clears throat> 12 million, uh, uh, what you might call first principle models, 750,000 predictive models, really, you could imagine if you were doing those things one at a time, uh, it would take you years and years and years to implement and train and to like deploy 750,000 models. But through the concept of classes and really the connections and the similarities between equipment, we can do that in bulk in essence and, uh, and still train models to the specifics of an individual equipment type or individual asset type, but do that in a in a very automated and scalable way. And that, that's truly the only way that you would scale an application uh, like that is through the concept of, of classes. Very neat. And is that, do you have a library of those classes within TwinThread that you that you're you're tapping into, so based on the, your 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 the client your clients their use cases and yeah. what you've seen, you can automatically deploy that to a new similar type of of, of customer. Yeah, so I've got I've got a couple things to share around that concept because that's a very common question and a, and a very sort of popular concept. And what I'm about to describe, I think, is is somewhat countercurrent in in the market. Um, our belief is that, that the classes and the, the knowledge and the, and the models and learning that are developed from those classes is the intellectual property of our customers. We, we are specifically not building a quote unquote industry database that is consolidating 
multiple customers' information and monetizing multiple customers' information. We are providing a platform for an individual customer to build up their own intellectual property set and own that. And we make that very, very efficient to build and manage. And, you know, we think that's an important element to, 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 for a customer to actually own that, that IP that gets produced from the platform. That, uh, yep. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, the, the anecdote I would give you is, is that just kind of sharing an experience uh, from, from my days at GE, where we were doing massively scaled monitoring of power equipment, you know, specifically gas turbines, like uh, 50% of the world's gas turbines, <laughs> essentially. And, you know, there aren't that many different types of gas turbines. There's about, let's say, six major types of gas turbines. And so one would think that <clears throat> having uh, having data on 50% of the world's gas turbines, and there's only six types of them, that you could build up this huge industry database that just perfectly described, perfectly modeled how those pieces of equipment behave. The reality is that each piece of equipment each power plant, each turbine needed to have its own personalized model. And so I've, you know, exiting my experience at GE, I, I felt like what we needed, you know, in the industry was a tool to very quickly build personalized models down to the individual equipment level and then have the resulting models be the property of the customer rather than rather than uh, uh, the, the vendor of the software. And, you know, that's quite countercurrent to what others are doing in this in this space. That, that, that's great. And th that is so, somewhat counterintuitive. You would assume that if you have a wind turbine somewhere that you could just take, you know, take a standard model and apply it to another wind turbine elsewhere. But but I think you're right. It's very it's, it's hard. You have to personalize it a lot more than you would like. And why is that? Is that just because yeah. of the, the context? Is it because, you know, you have a, 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 a gas turbine um, that's yeah. working like in an area that's very high performance and maybe it's like hot and humid, but then you have another gas turbine that's kind of hasn't worked that that hard for a while and it's a, in a colder, drier yeah. environment. Is that is that is that the reason why why that's the case? Well, let, let me let me answer by let's separate first principle models like physics based models from from machine learning models. For sure, the the first principle based models are going to work across a fleet of, of a certain type of equipment. Um, for sure, the, the actual manufacturers of that equipment are going to be in the best position to create the first principle type models for that um, and 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 it's another reason why we believe that that intellectual property should be owned by the 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 customer in that case the customer being the actual equipment manufacturer like the equipment manufacturer should should own their own first principle models however from a from a machine learning modeling perspective which now we're trying to really suss out the very subtle behaviors that are happening on an individual piece of equipment and you know to use the the gas turbine analogy you know it's it's about the exact the fuel type the fuel quality 
it's it's you know how it's connected in with the grid it's it's the auxiliary equipment around the turbine uh there's there's many factors um the climate you know <laughs> that that impact the 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 subtleties so it's like the macro performance characteristics can be captured with the first principle modeling but the micro where the really where the rubber meets the road and the difference makers end up being very personalized down to individual individual piece of equipment do, do you have a sense uh, um proportion wise uh, in terms of the value of the analytics where, where is it coming from today is it coming from the first principles based modeling or the machine learning based modeling if if, if, if you can quantify it or if you're, what's your kind of gut feeling about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, let's let, let me put it this way and to, just to be very, very sort of, uh, transparent and balanced about it. Sure. Let's not think of it in terms of value. Let's, let's sort of think of it in terms of a ratio of value to effort. Oh, okay. And for sure, high value to effort in kind of building out the visualization. If we go back to layer one of the digital twin, you know, high value per effort for that. Uh, let's, let's give that a, uh, on a scale of one to five, let's, let's give that a, let's make that the five, you know, value to effort. Definitely the next in line is the first principle modeling. And let's give that a, a, a three out of five um for sort of value per effort um so and you're then gonna get you're gonna start to interrupt but you're gonna get a lot of value for a, a small amount of effort for the visualization yeah. also for first principles modeling yep and then Perfect. you know if if uh if first principle modeling is a three out of five then probably uh modeling ai modeling is is a two out of five it takes a lot more effort you know, I think if you, you you're going to get a tremendous amount of value out of it, but it does take effort to to get there uh, and it takes a lot of data. Um, so that's that's sort of factored into that, you know, value per effort. So it's a commitment um, to, to go get that value. Um, but that's how I would sort of describe it to customers. But I really like that because in your framework, you've you've accumulated some value up until that point so that you can afford to wait for that data to come in so that you can learn, so you can train your your machine learning based models. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. sometimes like, you know, you, you come in and you do the investment and your customer is like, OK, I'm ready for my insights. And I have to say, well, we well, have to wait a year to collect all the data yeah. so that we can train the model and give you the insights. But but because of the visualization has been done first because of the sensor history because of the first base the fir uh, the first principles based modeling you've kind of accrued some value to draw down as you're waiting for the machine learning to come in and, right. and, and add some more value right and i and i you know in my ratios there i'm also factoring in you know the change management if you think about it we go through those those layers that journey uh, of implementing a digital twin it's not really until we get to the to the modeling piece where there's really any significant organizational change management. In other words, up to that point, 
we're not, uh, we're just putting uh, analytics in front of a human, a human sort of interprets them, or we're creating alerts automatically and a human interprets the alerts. It's not really till we get to the machine learning and, and the autonomous operation piece that it starts to make a difference. Um, and, you know, just to use an, another anecdote, um, one of our customers is, uh, is Colgate, uh, specifically within their Hills pet nutrition, uh, division. They just did a, a talk at a conference about what they were doing with our digital twin. And, and that is, that is really implemented all the layers that we talked about. They've, they've really gone through the full journey and they, um, they have achieved like autonomous operation where we're using models coming from the digital twin <clears throat> to not only recommend changes real time for an operator to make, but integrating that in with the control system and having a fully closed loop system. Now you can imagine this from a change management standpoint and, and achieving that result, which is extraordinarily valuable, uh, has has some some cost to it in terms of change management we're asking operators that were typically turning the dials to step back and take their hands off the wheel and let let the models make the decisions on how to control quality in this case very 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 powerful but is a is a significant commitment from the operations team to adopt a technology like that and 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 using your framework because you you've already shown value would you say that it's easier for those change agents within the organization to make the case to their technology teams to their operations teams um i'm sorry could you repeat that yeah sure so um because because the teams have already built up some value and are able to show it and can can demonstrate the technology and 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 point to some use cases where they've actually used some of the insights and now they're getting to the point where they have to do change management well they can use that to make the case yeah. to yeah, those absolutely. teams yeah i mean it, and it, not to not to sort of put a um negative spin on it i mean you, you can literally say, say that this is what a model would have done. This is what an operator did. Like, you know, you can compare <laughs> that the model would have been a better decision than what, what an operator made. And, and, uh, and, you know, maybe that's not it, it presented in, improperly. Maybe that sounds scary or bad for an operator. It's actually good because, you know, when mistakes are made, it, 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 not only costs money, it takes operators time, you know, to, uh, to deal with bad product or to do things. So it's, you know, I think it's, there's a quality of life thing there, but I mean, in terms of justifying that is, that is really the tactic. It's, this is what the machine would have done. This is what the human would have done, you know, on, on average, the, the machine, makes better decisions if, if this is all sort of configured and built properly. Eric, can you talk a little bit more about speed to deployment? Because um, having been in this space for some time now, I've, I've, I've uh, five years now in, in the industry 4.0 AI kind of space, um, you know, I think when we, when I started, it was kind of, it was all right to not 
necessarily show software that can be turned on in a, in in, a, in hours and weeks, but I think that's more and more becoming the standard. So you just can't come in and talk about analytics and machine learning uh, if you're if you're a vendor, if you're a software vendor. Yeah, you have to demonstrate working product code and solutions, and yeah. if not. I mean, hours is a little aggressive, but weeks for sure. Like you, you're no longer going to get the six month POC to show what you can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, customers are driving that. Um, I, I suppose it's true of any kind of a technology adoption cycle that, that uh, th this is inevitable. Like the customer's expectations start to shorten, shorten, shorten over time. Um so, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought there. No, um, no worries. What does that look like for a customer at, at, at TwinThread? How does that process work in, ter in terms of turning on the software? Because I really like your pitch. I go onto your website yeah. and, and your pitch is essentially like, just try it. Just try it for, you know, yep. turn it on and, and see what, what how it looks to you for, for a week. or And you can do that like very quickly. Yeah, now now I actually remember what I was I was going to mention. You know, in the early days of AI and machine learning, it was it was sort of okay to start with data in a data lake and then kind of use it in a tool that was going to do some modeling and really experiment. It it really started to break down when when customers expect, okay, great, you did an experiment, you you came up with a model, it looks very interesting. How do I actually operationalize it? How do I take it and, and start actually using it in the process? And that's where the expectations really started to shift. It's like er, in the early days of experimentation, there was enough value proven and sort of offline. So as we view it, the problem isn't starting with the data lake. It's actually starting out at the sensor and having a very repeatable path of data that gets collected, prepared, filtered, contextualized, and ready for modeling. And that's the piece when we talk about, you know, uh, minutes to hours, you know, that's the piece that, that we talk about, um, you know, making very, very, very quick. So, you know, our, our journey with customers starts with, you know, what, what control systems do you have? What, what on-premise data systems do you have and do we have an out-of-the-box connector that allows you to in a minute you know connect to that data source and start bringing in that data that's the that's the starting point and then the next step is building out the digital twins you know we build out the 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 digital representation of the equipment and i would point out the processes that's, that's something i didn't comment on earlier that's kind of missed in digital twins we're not just building digital twins of the equipment. We're, all, we're building a digital twin of the equipment and the processes that connect them. So that's sort of like the second step. And through that, you're building the context and the data contextualization that's needed for modeling. And so we wanna get through that first step where we can start training our first model very, very, very quickly. Now in the modeling step, we have a very important sub-element that we call evaluate. What we literally want to avoid is, um, or at least we want to have fast failure around. 
is trying to optimize something that that isn't optimizable. And so in our modeling step, we have a sub-step called evaluate. And the whole goal of that step is to look at the data, understand for the given use case, what is the potential for improvement? And also, do you have the inputs, the data that explain enough of the variation in the thing we're trying to improve to justify continuing the modeling process? So we, we not only do we want to get very quickly up to the point where we have contextualized data, we also want to get to the point quickly to make a decision on, is this worth proceeding? Is, this, is there enough value here? And is there enough explainable variation in what we're trying to optimize? That meaning, do you have the right data to support the use case? Uh, you know, we want to get to that. And if the answer is no, we want to stop and not waste time. Um, and if the answer is yes, yeah, then we, then we want to continue and then, you know, move forward with some of those more expensive, more complicated bits that we, that we talked about earlier. Eric, during this onboarding process, how much of it is just, um, self-service versus, um, tapping twin threads expertise, either forward deployed engineers or pre-sales engineers to help with some of the setup and integration. Um, Cause I would imagine there are going to be some cases where you, you are going to want some help from twin thread to set up yeah. some of those initial um, uh, um, builds uh, for, for, the, for the software. Yeah. I mean, a customer can do any, anything in our solution themselves. Um, and of course we can do everything for them, but I mean, the, the most, the most uh, popular deployment model is what we call assisted, assisted onboarding. And we, we assign an onboarding consultant and that onboarding consultant isn't someone who just trains you how to click through things that that onboarding consultant is typically has a, an engineering background. Maybe it's chemical engineering or, or industrial engineering or uh, control systems engineering typically has uh, process experience quality experience, uh, think things of that nature. So this is more than more than your typical, you know, software onboarding consultant. They're they're there to really help you frame up the problem you're trying to solve, help you evaluate, as I mentioned, whether this is something worth solving or not, and then guide you through the process of operationalization. Like how are you going to take the results of a model and actually use it in your in your production process, or use it in your you know in your equip with your equipment. Does it matter um, whether that onboarding consultant, or excuse me, the uh, I think yeah, onboarding consultant. Does yep. it matter whether or not they're on prem or remote? Has that changed how how you're doing some of these uh, onboardings? <laughs> you know, I, I think that as we're exiting the pandemic, there's there's nothing that uh, no substitute for for working face-to-face -face, at least a little bit. <laughs> um, but honestly, uh, we do 95% of our work remotely. Um, and even pre pre pandemic, um, and it just, it's just a very efficient, both for us and our customers to, to 
to not travel. I mean, let's 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 be honest. Uh, that takes a lot of efficiency out of the. And as long as we're effective, uh, it you know it's a better it's a better way working working remote is a better way. But having said that, there is no substitute for you know getting face to face and breaking bread, as as uh, some of our folks say, with with customers. Um, but we can be very efficient remotely. Eric, can you talk a little bit about how the industry has changed since you've been? You've mentioned you've been in the space for, I think you said twenty-five years, or yes, twenty-five years. So I'm sure you've seen like just yeah. a ton of evolution. Um, what's as you look back on the career, what's what's so unique about this time that we are in right now that we should appreciate, especially those of us that are that are just coming into the space on our own. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so, um, this will age me a bit, but, uh, I implemented my first, um, machine learning model a neural network model on a paper machine to predict sheet breaks on a paper machine back in 1990. It was, it was very successful, like in terms of accuracy, we were able to predict breaks on a paper machine. And for anybody who's in the paper industry, this is literally the holy grail of, of modeling, if you will, in the, in that industry. And so that was 1990. So it's something that we made successful and we've spent maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars at the time on, on the software. And, uh, it, it would take a full full time engineer to keep it up to speed. And so I at, at that time, I, I took on a new job, took on a new responsibility. And guess what happened to that very accurate, very powerful model? It just it just died. So, you know, I fast forward to today and, and think, you know, we can actually do in a sustainable way today what, you know, 30 years ago, was very very expensive and uh unsustainable you know from uh and so that's that's driven a lot by the the power of what's available in the cloud i mean the power of what's available as open source in terms of algorithms and how you can take them and pull them into a platform that that can operationalize those algorithms um and you know the scale of the cloud also just makes a huge, a huge difference. So we can take the same effort that it would have taken to look after a single system on a single production line. And we can, we can do that for thousands of plants, thousands of production lines, hundreds of thousands of pieces of equipment. And we can just do that much, much more efficiently. That that is spot on. As as I talk to my customers about AI and machine learning, I I kind of have to explain that the buzz around AI and machine learning isn't necessarily the 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 the, uh, the the algorithms itself. It's just the context and the tooling that's available now to make it happen. We've had neural net models for 20, 30 years, but yep. we didn't have you know AWS and Microsoft Azure to 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 store a whole bunch of data. We couldn't get the data coming off of the machines because we didn't have the right connectivity. We didn't have the gateways. 
Um, we didn't have access to cloud-based notebooks. So like I, I can now spin up an, an R Studio notebook or a Jupyter notebook and write a model from anywhere in the world. I and have, have access to GPUs, TPUs. Like that was that was that was not around. So you have right. the, the the tooling, the infrastructure, and I think the cultural the cultural um, appreciation as well for analytics and data now in a in a pre-money ball type of world that yeah. that is making it all come together. And now that's that's part of the reason why AI is 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 in machine learning is seeing a renaissance of sorts. Yeah, I absolutely absolutely agree. And it's not like the desire you know, 25 or 30 years ago, wasn't there to see around corners and to predict the future and to like generally be more proactive. It just, the desire was there. The desire has been there all along, but it isn't until I'm going to say the last 10 years, but I mean, in a practical sense, maybe even the last five years where it has become feasible to to be proactive at scale. Um, you know, many, many companies have had success deploying an AI solution on a single line uh, for a single use case. Um, and even going back maybe 15 years, they may have had some sort of pilot success or limited success. It, it hasn't been until re recently where we can even talk about this customer has deployed 750,000 predictive models and you know was using it every single day and here are the results of that like those stories uh are only coming into reality in the last couple of years right and now that's that's the bar now it, 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 to your point it used to be that you could just show a simple use case a model and for one line but we're past that. You have to be able to show that and you have to show how you would deploy to thousands of machines if you got the green light from from the, the, the company to do it. That's right. Yep. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what technology folks get wrong when trying to deploy um, some of this technology into the manufacturing space? So... I feel like there's yeah. there's there's oftentimes a disconnect. I you know I was at a company where we were we were we had Silicon Valley uh, tech people and we were hopping onto the factory floor and and sometimes I felt like we weren't we weren't striking the right chord and and there was some you know some some getting along that had to happen at first. So you know in in your view is there like is there an approach that a technologist needs to be taking as you're trying to deploy into Industry 4.0? Yeah, I, uh, I'm chuckling a little bit because, you know, we've over the years, we've gone through sort of uh, multiple waves of different sort of organizational tensions, you know, related to technology. You know, it started with networking and were the corporate networks going to be able to connect to the control system networks, you know, and there's a big battle over that. And, and then, you know, uh, there's been a battle between sort of... Uh, uh, OT and IT, let's say, you know, who, who's going to control the data and who's going to work with the data. And, you know, I think the latest battle is, uh, is, is, is a nuanced version of the IT versus OT sort of organizational tension. And it's the engineer versus the data scientist. Uh, and, you know, and I hate to like present it like it's a adversarial, um, uh, thing because it's not but but there is 
organizational tension between those roles on who is best equipped to deliver these new technologies like AI machine learning uh, into an industrial organization. Maybe if it's an insurance company, maybe not so much of a debate, but if you make stuff, whether you make equipment or whether you, whether you're a manufacturer that makes stuff, you know, this is a real, there's real tension there between the engineer and the data scientist. And the fundamental question of, is it easier to teach the engineer about data science because they understand the process and how all the process works? Or is it easier to, un to teach the data scientist about the process so that they, you know, you can achieve and, I'm not going to answer that question. I mean, I have opinions. I just think as a, as a software vendor, it's our job to bring those roles together around a common platform and make it easy for the data scientists to do their value added work, but at the same time, make it so the process engineer, the, the engineer can succeed as well because you're, we, it's a fit for purpose digital twin platform that's role in life is to optimize the process. So, so we have to build it in a way that, that the engineers that, that work are the subject matter experts in that process can succeed. So kind of very indirect way of answering your question, but as I see it, that is the, that is the 2020, you know, uh, battle of, of organizations is, who gets to do the data science and you know from our perspective everybody should get to do the data science and and we need to like we need to uh create tools that help the all of the roles in an organization succeed and we just happen to be focused in on the subject matter experts the, the process engineers the chemical engineers and so forth I think that's the right place to be. I'm a, I'm a big fan of upskilling engineers with data science capabilities. So get a quality control engineer and teach them some Python or some R. That's usually your, your best route for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, there is, to your point, you know, it, it's, it's, in, it's engineering versus data science and engineering. There's a lot of nuance that isn't captured in the data. So as a data scientist, I would look at the data, I could figure something out yeah. and I'd, I take it to an engineer and they're like, no, you've obviously missed uh, this key part of the process. Well, I didn't see that because I didn't see the data, but you would know it if you were on the factory floor, if you had been involved in the process, there's like a lot of these big gaps that you have in, in, in the data. And so I, I like it from that perspective. I also yes, like that, it. That illustrates why there needs to be something where they're working together, you know, uh, and, you know, <laughs> something that worked with a Jupyter notebook, but also works with an Excel spreadsheet, you know, <laughs> so. Uh, right, or no code options. I think you're, you're right. working on no code, low code. That's great. That's great as well, because that's going to help some of these engineers, you know, get involved. And if they want to get more into the code, fine. But that's not stopping them right. to just start getting involved. So you asked, like, where where is are they getting it wrong? Um, um, some and, and to tie it back to the to sort of the waves of technology. You know, in the old days, if if someone said the word network, well, that meant that this sort of IT group that worked on the networking had to be had to be you know involved for sure but made the decision and so today 
if the word machine learning comes up, it, it immediately goes to the data science team. And that data science team might be working on, you know, Salesforce analytics or, you know, product mix analysis or demand forecasting, you know, doing super, super valuable things, but not necessarily focused on, on solving problems out on the plant floor and giving operators better tools and better recommendations on how to run better. And so, you know, that's more of how they get it wrong is when you try to force fit just because of the technology moniker, like you try to force fit it into this part of the organization when really it should be uh, thought of maybe a little bit higher level than that. That's a that's a great point. That's a common mistake that I see as well. You, you you have leaders that just see data science that can do data science across all domains, but data science in, it will vary from domain to domain and technology to technology and even uh, use case to use case from natural language processing to image recognition to predictive analytics. These are all highly fragmented. And just because one team can do one of those well, to your point, demand forecasting, doesn't mean you can quickly turn around that team and have them do predictive analytics on a machine on the ground floor. There is a lot that has to happen for them to be able to do that well. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the companies that are doing digital transformation right? I'm sure you're seeing a lot of folks come through. Um, some of them are having great success with your technology. Others are not having uh, maybe the best results. And it's, it's the same technology, same experience. I'm guessing that there is a difference between what some of the better companies are doing when it comes to digital transformation versus the ones that are having the best experience. Have you seen that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not going to single out anybody specifically, <laughs> but certainly um, uh, it's, it's really the speed, you know, I wouldn't, it's not so binary as success or failure, right? It's, it's really speed through the journey. And just like in any other technology, you, you know, you have the early adopters and you have the early majority and the late majority. And certainly um, those that are, you know, true early adopters understand that it, that it is a journey and, and kind of commit to the innovation. Um, and those that are maybe slower are more expecting a, a, a point solution or, you know, they're, they're, thinking about it uh, at a single use case level, as opposed to a platform level of something that's going to solve a whole variety of problems for them. Um, and so, you know, things tend to go slower if, if, uh, if a company is just focused on a singular use case, things tend to go slower if, if that singular use case is, a science experiment and not a true operational problem with big dollars associated with it. And so, you know, the companies that kind of frame up the problem in, in, in big economics and frame up the problem in a, from a platform and capability perspective end up ironically, even though that sounds big and intergalactic, ironically going a lot faster because working on big problems helps to get big organizations, you know, the momentum they need to like power through the steps of the journey and do that, you know, relatively quickly. 
um, companies that are kind of thinking of like, I'm going to dip my toe in the water. I'm going to try it on this small problem that, you know, doesn't really matter if it succeeds or fails, but like we'll learn, we'll learn something from the experience, you know, that we engage in those projects. Um, but those go slower because, you know, even if you succeed, it's, you know, you succeed, you prove that you have this really accurate modeling, for example, but you solved a non-important problem. It's like, you know, it's just a shrug of the shoulders and like, okay, what else, what are we going to do next? We still engage in those projects, but absolutely go much, much slower. What are some of the, the driving factors for those companies that are that are making the play towards a big platform play? So they have some conviction. They they know that they have to start moving in, in a more digitally transformed way. What are some of the what, what are some of the factors that are driving them to make those big bets? Because I, I would imagine that you need some 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 really big reasons for making that big investment. Yeah, I mean, uh, sustainability is a is a hot topic and. And, uh, uh, you know, it's in, in a lot of ways, I think companies uh, know they need to address sustainability. They know they need to put points on the board. But, uh, you know, honestly, it maybe uh, they aren't as disciplined at, as actually measuring the benefits uh, of, of that. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's a big initiative comes out of sustainability. Uh, sometimes a big initiative comes out of a, of a recall problem or a quality problem or, and, you know, sometimes uh, a big initiative uh, comes from uh, uh, demonstrated success, you know, in one, one plant, you know, expanding to another. Um, and, and, you know, there's leadership that can recognize that success and what it could mean at scale. You know, sometimes it's sort of a more of a bottom up, um, bottom up. But obviously, we like to see as a as, as a vendor, we like to see the big the big initiatives, the big edicts, you know, that that come down from the CEO that says we're, we're going to be more sustainable or, or we are going to be a leader in quality or we are going to be, you know, fill in the blank. Those, that certainly gives you a lot of momentum to do, to do the big things. Um, Eric, how would you like the industry to change in, in the next five years? You've been in the space for 25 years. What's like the best case scenario in five years for 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 analytics, for manufacturing, yeah. for AI, for industry 4.0? I mean, our vision and, you know, it's just just now starting to become a reality is is autonomous, autonomous operation. And, uh, you know, taking the use case that I described earlier about like automatically controlling quality based off of the digital twin. It's, just, it's an example of that. And, um, you know, in our vision that companies will be able to optimize dozens of factories from a single virtual control room. That's not mean you're going to replace all the individual control rooms in a plant, but rather you have this central virtual center of excellence 
that's able to push out recommendations to dozens and dozens of plants and just to do that very efficiently. We see pockets of that in certain industries like power generation, for example. It's been the concept of having a, a centralized control room like that's working over the top of many plants and feeding information back to the individual plants, uh, sometimes real time on how they can actually run better, run more efficiently. Um, I think over the next five years, we're going to see that same concept working its way into consumer products, food and beverage, especially chemicals, you know, a whole bunch of other industries that traditionally ran plant by plant by plant. And especially for those companies with scale, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity to, to do work, to optimize from a, from the central virtual center of excellence that allows you to get a lot more efficiency out of uh, the whole network of, of plants, as opposed to individual plant or individual line. That's where we'd like to see things go. And I think it's certainly, uh, certainly a possibility. Great. Um, Eric, uh, it's been a great talking to you. We're, we're at, at the end of our time here. Any last comments um, that you want to share with the audience? Uh, any, you know, where can people find you? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, come to our, our website, uh, twinbread.com and check out uh, what we're doing. There's, there's uh, many ways to engage there from videos to, uh, to content. And it's, uh, we're trying to improve that all the time. And of course, uh, feel free to reach out to me directly uh, and to engage on this topic. Obviously, we're very passionate about it and uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on today and, and, and talk. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.